series through the Gospel of Mark. We've been in this for a few months, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8 this morning. So I invite you to turn over there, turn on your vice or whatever you're using. So 30 years ago, November 1988, in Tishomingo, Mississippi, which is an awesome name for a city, uh, there was a head football coach named David Herbert. Uh, he was coaching the last game of the season. His team was winning 16-14, to 14, so they're up by two. They have the ball, and there's seven seconds left. So if you know anything about football, what do you do if you have the ball and you're winning and the game is almost over? Just take a knee and let the clock run out. Well, he calls the play in to the quarterback, which happened to be his son. His son runs to the huddle and calls the play, and they refuse to run the play. In fact, they get a delay of game penalty. And then finally, they agree to run the play, but the play he called, instead of taking a knee and taking the win, was to turn around, toss the ball backwards to the running back, Shane Hill, and have him turn and run the opposite direction for negative 55 yards and lay down in the end zone and get a safety and tie the game and send them in overtime. The team didn't understand why they're doing this, but they eventually agreed to let their coach have the final say in that. Called the play, snapped the ball, turned around, tossed the ball to Shane Hill. He ran it for negative 50 yards, laid down in the end zone as the clock went to zero, and it tied the game, and the crowd went crazy on the home side. I mean, they were yelling as if you set through a football game. You can, you can imagine some of the things that are yelled during these times. You know, maybe you're one of those people. We sit in the bleachers and think we know everything, and somehow we're more educated than the coaches, and, and these Fans were just letting him have it. Some of the parents were demanding that he be fired right there on the spot. Like they were trying to find the superintendent and wanted him fired. Why would he do something like this? It seemed crazy. It didn't make any sense. But he had a plan in mind. And there's more to that story. I'm going to finish that in just a minute. But I want to read our text again that Jack read this morning, Mark chapter 8. Just to get your minds thinking, you know, get your hearts in the right place as we study the gospel of Mark I'm going to read, starting in verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They said to one another, It is because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Or do you still not understand? If I was one of the disciples sitting on a boat with him and he said all this and did all these things with the numbers and said, do you still not understand? I would be one of the ones saying, no, I still don't get it. What in the world is he talking about? What do these numbers have to do with anything? If you've picked up on Jesus' teaching style as we study through the Gospels, he likes to tell parables and tell stories and use examples like this, but he never really straight up tells you exactly what it means. Sometimes he does. And it's almost like these numbers are a riddle, or that's a parable in themselves. And, you know, if you remember back in your school days, and you can think of maybe your worst subject, which math was one of my many worst subjects, and I had 
teachers explain to me the same thing 20 or 30 times, and I'm still thinking, I don't get it. And that's what I'm thinking here as I read this passage. He's using these numbers, but what in the world does it mean? What did it mean to them? What does it mean to us? What do these numbers have to do with anything? And that's why I think that this coach from Tishomingo helps explain some things. So he has the crowd all upset with him. They go into overtime at 16 to 16, and that same running back, Shane Hill, in overtime, scored a touchdown and won the game 22 to 16. He finished the game, if you're into football and you like statistics, he finished the game with negative 29 yards because he had to do that negative 50-yard run, but they won. All right, so everybody was all upset, and they still ended up winning, but why would he do that? Why take a risk? Why send him into overtime? Well, what he knew, what a lot of people did not know, was that they had to win by four to make the playoffs. So they were only winning by two, and he knew they didn't have a 45-yard play in their playbook, so he decided to take the chance, go into overtime, because he had a bigger picture in mind. He wanted to make the playoffs. He didn't want to just win that game. He wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to make the playoffs, but nobody knew that. And one of the reporters who was reporting on this story wrote an article in the newspaper the next day, and they said this, sometimes you have to be willing to be ridiculed and to look crazy for a greater game. He was willing to be criticized. He was willing to take all that heat on him because he had a bigger picture in mind. He had a vision in mind. He knew where he was going. And even if he had to stand alone for a while, he was going to do that because he wanted to accomplish something long term. And in Mark, all throughout Mark, this is what Jesus is doing. He has a vision. He has a plan. He has a goal. He knows where he's leading his disciples. He knows that his path is leading him to the cross. And for most people, it doesn't make a lot of sense. For the religious leaders, Jesus takes on a lot of heat. He takes on a lot of criticism. But he's willing to be ridiculed. He's willing to look crazy for a greater gain. And he gives us like a window, a glimpse into that vision here in Mark chapter 8. So to help us understand it, let's go back through slowly. We're going to start in Mark 8 and back up to verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. Now you see in verse 11, the Pharisees, these are religious leaders, but not in an official capacity. They're you know, unofficial religious leaders that have influence on the people. And you see throughout Mark, they're constantly antagonizing Jesus. And now... After all that he has done, they're asking for a sign from heaven. Them asking for a sign is a sign in and of itself that their hearts are hardened. In verse 12, it says about Jesus, he sighed deeply in his heart. You know, if you think children, you know, you know you've done something wrong when your parents yell at you or spank you or ground you, and you don't like the punishment, but sometimes what's even Worse is when you've done something so wrong that your parents are just quiet because they're just so hurt and so disappointed. I feel like that's what's happening with Jesus here. He just, he sighs deeply in his heart, in his spirit. And I want to live a life to where, with me as an individual, my family, our church, that we don't cause Jesus to sigh deeply in his spirit. And he said to them, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. So that's what sparks what's following. And then we get the travel plans of Jesus in Mark 8 and verse 13. It says, he left them, and getting into the boat, again, he went across to the other side. 
So I'm sure maybe only three or four of you remember this, but last Sunday morning, we looked at Mark chapter 5, and I told you, pay attention when Mark writes the other side. You know, Mark 5, he goes to the other side of the sea. That's where he meets the demoniac and casts out legion. And then he gets in the boat and he goes back to the other side. And all throughout Mark chapters 4 through 8, Jesus is coming and going to the other side. So the reason that Mark keeps including that is because that's important to the ministry of Jesus. That's important to his vision. When you think of the other side, what do you think of? You might think of the other side of the country. You know, sometimes I say the other side of town because I feel like Longview is really spread out, and I don't know how else to describe it, just somewhere on the other side of town. We have this phrase in most of our, at least southern towns, I'm sure it happens in the north some too, where we say the other side of the tracks. And usually that's some sort of racial or economic divide. So we're used to language like the other side. You might even think within this room, this auditorium, how many of you would raise your hands and say, I've been sitting on the same side of the auditorium for at least a year? Anybody say that? Wow. That was more than I was expecting. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I've been sitting on the same side of the auditorium for five years? Okay, a lot of you. I don't know how long this building has been here, but I think it's not more than 10 years, so I won't go beyond that. But a lot of you have been sitting in the same side of the auditorium for many years now. So what would it be like? So show up next Sunday and sit on the other side. You're in the same room, probably the same people leading worship, but you're going to see all these new faces in the back of different heads and different kids crying and different noises, and it's going to be different. You'd be like in a whole new world. And that's what Jesus is doing in Mark. He's going back and forth to the other side, but he's not going by himself. He's taking his disciples with him. He has a vision in mind. His travel arrangements going to the other side, indicate that Jesus has a long-term vision in mind. Right, so we continue on in Mark 8 and verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. Uh, I think Mark kind of shows us some humor here. The disciples, if you read through Mark, they seem to never have enough bread. Those guys are a little bit silly and they're slow to get some things. If you've been around me long enough, I mentioned this to Jessica last night, and she strongly agreed that if in between lunch and dinner, if I don't have some sort of snack, I can't concentrate and I can't do anything until I get something to eat. I have a really strong sweet craving. So there's been many days I've showed up to the office and I eat lunch, and then maybe around 3 o'clock I'm like, man, I'm hungry and I need something, and I can't concentrate until I get something to eat. Right? Now the disciples show up on this boat and they forget their snack. And apparently it's very distracting to them because they can't comprehend what Jesus is trying to teach them. And in verse 15, he cautioned them. He uses this as a teaching opportunity. He said, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Now, some of your translations say the leaven. So this has to do with bread, you know, that's Look at the Passover meal, they ate unleavened bread. We just took the Lord's Supper, we eat unleavened bread. Usually in the Bible, leaven is symbolic of something evil. I think only one time in the Bible is leaven used for something good. Every time else it's used, it's symbolic of something evil. So he's using the disciples forgetting bread as an opportunity to warn them about the Pharisees and Herod. So the Pharisees, this unofficial religious group, and then Herod, who is actually a political ruler, 
Those two groups don't normally go together, but what Mark has already told us in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 3 and verse, I think it's verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians plot together on how they can kill Jesus. So they're bonded with, they're unified with the same desire, and that's to get rid of Jesus. So Jesus warns his disciples, beware of the Pharisees and of Herod and their yeast, their leaven. Right? They don't have the kingdom vision in mind. They have a very short-term vision, and they just want to get rid of Jesus. And again, where I think there's some humor involved is verse 16, and the disciples said to one another, it is because we have no bread. Or some of your translations say it's because we forgot to bring bread. Again, I think they're, they're hungry, and it's just they can't comprehend what Jesus is trying to teach them. So all they're thinking about is their bread. They're completely misunderstanding Jesus. And they do that often, and frankly, so do we. So in verse 17 and 18, becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? So verse 17 and 18, what does that sound like? If you did the scripture memorization challenge, right, that was Mark 4, 1 through 20, this is almost verbatim. He teaches the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, and then in Mark 4, 10 through 12, when he's alone with his disciples in private, he explains to them the parables, and he says, so that those on the outside may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. This is where he's talking about having ears to hear, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. But now he's turned it around, and he is quoting this towards the disciples. Are your hearts still hardened? You have eyes to see, but you're not catching the vision. Ears to hear, but you're not actually hearing what Jesus is teaching. And then he says, at the end of verse 18, and do you not remember? So what's he asking them to remember? Well, then he quotes this in verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. So if you're not familiar with the story, let me remind you or catch you up to speed here. In Mark chapter 6, Starting in verse 30, Jesus is out in this field, out in the middle of nowhere. There's all these Israelites, all these Jewish people coming to him, and he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then in the middle of nowhere, involving his disciples with another teaching lesson, he takes what little food they have, multiplies it miraculously, and feeds 5,000 men. Let's, I'll just read to you a little snippet from that. Um, we'll start Mark 6, starting in verse 39. He ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. All eight were filled. So they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. Now that's just men. So Jesus, in Mark 8 and verse 19, is reminding them of this scene. Remember when there was 5,000 men and we fed them? How many baskets did you collect? Afterwards, there was enough bread for everyone. Everyone got to eat, and they had 12 baskets left over. So maybe these numbers mean something, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a clue of what I think the numbers mean. 
They start with five loaves of bread. They have 5,000 people, 5,000 men. That number five represents almost all things Jewish. Five books of Torah or Torah, if you want to be real specific on how you pronounce that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you know, these, the, the law of Moses, these five books. So this number five is important. So when there's five loaves of bread and there's 5,000 men, maybe that's what that number is symbolic for. But the 12 baskets that were left over, that most definitely is a symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel. This number 12 is important throughout Mark. We even saw that last week in Mark chapter 5. We see that when Jesus calls the official apostles, he chooses 12 of them. So that number 12 obviously represents something that is Jewish, something from their own heritage. It's an important number. And what we see in that feeding section in Mark chapter 6 is it takes place in, on Jewish soil, on Jewish territory. And Jesus is acting as a shepherd for the Jews. He's feeding them, sitting them down in green grass. And all throughout the story, you know, he's calming the storm at the end of Mark 4. He walks on water in Mark 6, so he leads them beside the quiet waters. He's casting out demons. He restores their soul. So Jesus is a living example of Psalm 23. And he's doing this for the lost sheep of Israel. He's doing it for the Israelites, for the Jews. But then in Mark 8 and verse 20, he plays the numbers game a little bit more, and he says, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. So if you didn't know this, there were two miraculous feeding stories that we know of. It happened in Mark 6, and then it happened again in Mark chapter 8. And this time in Mark chapter 8, when it happens, uh, there's only 4,000 men. So the numbers are a little different, but the story is very similar. And I'll just read Mark 8, verse 6 and following. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute, and they distributed them to the crowd. They had also a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. They ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. So this is the second feeding story that Jesus is referring to in Mark chapter 8 and verse 20. So what do these numbers mean? Well, you have 4,000 people in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, which Mark relies heavily on, and I've mentioned that several times, you have the four winds, which represent the four nations. So maybe that 4,000 represents the four nations in Isaiah, which represents all nations beyond just the Israelites. Now, you know, in the ancient world, the number seven was an important number, and they pick up seven baskets full left over when he feeds the people this time in Mark 8. So that number 7 is a number for completeness or wholeness. The second feeding story takes place in Gentile territory. Jesus is acting as a shepherd for the Gentiles as well, for the Greeks, for the Romans, for anybody, a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. So he's doing this not only for his own people, his own tribe, but he's acting as a shepherd for all people. And then he says in Mark 8, 21, do you not yet understand? 
Are you getting the vision? Are you catching what he's trying to teach them? Jesus is feeding a multi-ethnic flock. It's not just for those who have the same face as them or of the same race. It's for all people. He's a shepherd for the Jews, and he goes to the other side, and he's a shepherd for the Gentiles. He's a shepherd for all, for all nations. The gospel is for everyone. The good news that Jesus is preaching from the very beginning is not just for their own people. It is for everyone, for all ethnicities. And that's something that the disciples are slow to understand. You keep reading. In fact, if they would have got it right away, we wouldn't, we'd have had a much shorter New Testament. But a lot of the problems they're dealing with throughout the New Testament, Paul's letters and the book of Acts, is bringing together Jews and Gentiles, of taking the gospel beyond their comfort zones and out into the world and, and maybe even across town to the other side where there are people of different races and taking the gospel to them as well. You can read Acts chapters 10 and 11 and see how hard this was for them to fully grasp and to fully understand. But Jesus is painting a picture for them. He has a vision in mind, and he's training his disciples. In February of 1960, this is a picture of a guy named Dr. Carl Spain. At the time, he was a pretty well-known preacher, and he was asked to be the keynote preacher at the ACU lectureships. So there's already going to be thousands of people in attendance, but they word got out that he was going to be talking about something potentially controversial, so even more people showed up. There were newspaper reporters and people from the media showing up to hear what he was going to preach. And I found this online. You can listen to the audio recording of this. But in his sermon, in front of a crowd that was all white, and he's a white preacher, he said, we call ourselves Christians, yet we drive people out based on the color of their skin. And what he was doing was painting a picture of the same vision that Jesus had. That he is a shepherd for all races, for all nations, and for all people. And apparently this speech at that time, which was very forward-thinking for that culture, ruined his preaching career. Everybody that had Carl Spain scheduled to preach in different churches and conferences started canceling on him. He was willing to be ridiculed, he was willing to take the criticism for a greater gain. He believed strongly in the vision and the picture that Jesus was painting for his own disciples. So there's power in understanding. In Mark 8, 21, Jesus says, do you still not understand? So being a shepherd of a multi-ethnic flock, you know, what does that mean for us today? What is a takeaway from it? The temptation in preaching is to give you a list of bullet points to say we could do this, this, or, th or that, or whatever it may be. But I'm just going to kind of throw this lesson out there and just let you pray about it and think about maybe what that would mean for your own life, the implications that that would have today. A house we lived in previously, uh, there was a church that was in our backyard, basically, and they had a parking lot that was a perfect half mile. So I like to go out there at night and run, and it was easy because you could just run the half mile. If I wanted to run three miles, I run around that thing six times. And they had this big monument set up in their parking lot. I mean, it was a long statue, and they had this light reflecting on it, and it said, catch the vision. 
So as I would run past it multiple times a night, multiple times a week, I was just reading that subconsciously, catch the vision, catch the vision, catch the vision. As you study through Mark, that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching, he's a living example, he's showing his disciples to catch the vision. And they do, and it takes a while, but they eventually catch the vision that he is painting for them. Last week, we've been doing these church-wide challenges, and the challenge was simple, yet I think it can be profound for you, and that's just to write out your faith journey. Write out your own story or your testimony, whatever you want to call it, your spiritual autobiography, but sit down, take some time, and write out why you believe, why you were baptized, why you still believe in Jesus, how God has worked in your life. And, you know, maybe a takeaway from a lesson like this this morning would be to write out your story, and we challenge you to share it with one person. Maybe it would be to share it with someone of a different ethnicity. How would that be for you? Sit across the table for lunch or dinner and to share it with someone who's different from you. And maybe in doing so, you'll start to catch that vision that Jesus had in mind. He goes back and forth to the other side all throughout Mark, because he's showing his disciples something. And as you keep reading through Mark, the climax of Mark is that he's on his way to the cross, to be betrayed, to suffer, and to die. And in the ultimate form, Jesus goes to the other side, not just into Gentile territory, but he goes to the other side of death, willing to die on a cross all the way through and out the other side and through the resurrection And then all the apostles who caught the vision went around preaching about Jesus, who he is, what he did, the implications of believing the gospel, and him going to the other side, the death, burial, and resurrection. And the invitation was for them, and it's the same for us today. If you want to believe in Christ, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, I mentioned it last week, I mentioned it every week, we have a baptistry. We can set that up for you. If you need prayers, if you need to talk with one of our shepherds, they're going to be around the room this morning. Take this opportunity to respond. We'll invite Kate back up and let's stand and sing. Mountains surround Jerusalem.